This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with Cal Penn, host of the new documentary, This Giant Beast That Is the Global Economy. The series from executive producer Adam McKay is currently available to stream on Amazon. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will preview HBO's The Case Against Adnan Saeed and Hulu's Shrill. Then we'll talk with senior TV awards editor Michael Schneider, who wrote this week's variety cover story about the growing cost of Emmy campaigns. Stay tuned. Cal Penn, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Um, there's a lot of silliness baked into this show about, you know, ostensibly serious things. I think in the first couple minutes of the first episode, you're, you're riding a bicycle built for two with one of the reporters who broke the Panama Papers story. Yeah. So what, what is it about that approach that you found, you know, useful or appealing? I mean, the, the most truthful answer is that I'm a giant man child. So like in exploring anything, there's, you know, the. There's inherently like some silliness or some joy or some sophomoric sentiment that always comes out as evidenced by the the constant runner of 69 jokes uh, because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. But uh, So there's a little bit of that. But I think the, the other part of it was these are deeply serious issues with really serious people who have experienced and, and either the perpetrators of or victims of greed in a lot of cases or folks like the journalists who have uncovered it. Um, and I think sometimes in telling those stories – or especially reading articles, rightfully so, that are that are very serious. You kind of lose the the humanity of it. You lose kind of the human nature of these are people who like make dinner just like you and who have you know the, the normalcy of it. And I think when we forget that there's so much normalcy behind it, we don't feel like we're empowered to do anything about it. This is now like a way in the weeds reason for why I love humor to to kind of diffuse a lot of serious things. But um, but I think that was part of the approach was. That might have been the subtext of it, but we wanted to have fun while we were making it. Right. And, well, you said it, it, it sort of um, diffuses, using the humor diffuses these sort of serious things. Uh, are there, you worked on this with Adam McKay, obviously, um, who has like a really vast background of, of being on both sides of that fence. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your conversations like in terms of like, you know, how much could you push that without actually undermining the points you were trying to make? Yeah, so that's an interesting question about how it all came together. So I have not yet met Adam. Because ah. um, I live in New York. I yeah, think yeah. Adam lives in L.A. And we shot the project all over the world. Um, and I came on after. So I was not part – I'm not a producer. I'm not part of the kind of team behind it. So I was on different email chains with Adam. Um, but ultimately, by the time it got to sort of the hosting stage, it was past the development stage. So, um, So in terms of my view of all that – I'm less sardonic, I think, in my approach to these types of situations. And obviously his brand is very much like the cynicism that comes out of it. So it was interesting to play with because my view before I left for the project was this is going to be incredible. You know, all people are great. Humanity is wonderful. I'm excited to go to all these different countries. Not realizing that, you know, the vast part of your 14-hour day are spent talking to victims or perpetrators of greed which then results in like, oh my gosh, I mean, obviously incredibly privileged to have the chance to go to all these places, but what is this reality of these people's lives and what they've either done or what they've been through? Um, so that's where like, it, I wouldn't say it's sort of like chipped away at my worldview, but I definitely understood a little more Adam's sort of premise of, of approaching it. And so I think at, at the end, you've got like the kind of silliness that um, that I bring to it, plus some of the the more scripted beats or the stuff that was a little more 
set up or, or the more kind of cynical side to it to paint what we hope is a little more of a balanced picture that takes you out of what would otherwise just be an article or a, or a book or a piece on, on network TV about something like so, that. So was this, you worked in the White House though, so I mean, was this more scales falling from the eyes than, than that experience was? Um, I think they're just different. I mean, the, the you know, first of all, I didn't work on the economic team at the White House. I would love to take credit for saving us from a financial collapse. But, well done. You know, I, uh, I was not on, a, on, that, on that team. Um, I, yeah, I think the, the biggest eye-opener for a show like this is 10 or 15 years ago, if you were to interview a money launderer, um, I don't know what you would have gotten out of it, but I know that a lot of people would say things like, you're such a conspiracy theorist thinking that rich people pull puppet strings. Nowadays, you can do a show like this and have a conversation with the rich people who will tell you that they're pulling puppet strings. I don't know if that's progress or if that's just shady, but um, but that was the biggest eye-opener. That has nothing to do with my time in politics, obviously. It just has more to do with how we talk about certain issues. You know, Talking to the CEO of a, of a rubber company, for example, I don't know if this has made it into the final kind of product, but... Asking why he doesn't just pay more to his farmers. You know, like, well, that's not how business works. I'm like, I understand that's not how business works. Well, if I do it, my competitors aren't going to do it, and I'm not going to be as competitive. Totally understand how that works. But what I'm asking you is why not pay 35 cents more for a pound of rubber to these otherwise destitute people who are farming this rubber for you and make, like, one less zero on your paycheck at the end of the year? Well, that's just not how capitalism works. But I care so deeply for these people. I'm like, okay, well... Then I would have no episode if I stopped the conversation there, right? But the fact that they're willing to acknowledge that that whether you want to call it greed or capitalism or just playing by the rules, which obviously these big corporations have crafted for themselves, I think the eye-opening thing for me was that nobody was really hiding behind the notion that this doesn't exist. Um, and I appreciate like, the way that Adam kind of set up the show was such that we're just willing to openly talk about these issues. Nobody's calling it a conspiracy theory because it's not. It's just this is how the global economy works. How much uh, how much resistance was there? I mean, I, I imagine that a lot of the the interviews that you did were sort of pre-set up. But, I mean, was were you – how shocked were you that people were willing to talk about this stuff? Um, I was pretty shocked in some regard. I mean, it's – you know, again – the this is more of a macro level show and my experience is more looking at the human interest side of things. So I, I think inherently my approach to it was trying to get stories that we maybe, maybe weren't relevant to kind of the, the overall picture. How shocked was I? Is that what you were saying? Yeah. I was less shocked at, I was not that shocked. I think I was more shocked by pe- people's candor, like the the rubber episode, for example. But I was more pleasantly surprised by a lot of the nuance. And I'll I'll give you an example. There's a reason I was hesitating because I was thinking of this example. So one of the episodes is on uh, the death industry and the value that we place on human life. So talk about insurance companies and you know in an accident, how do they value your life? And that's everything from how much sex you were having with your partner to uh, whether you had kids, to the quality of your life. Did you get to go on vacations? Were you were you contributing to your job? I mean, all of that has to do with the settlement that somebody's going to pay you, which is crazy, but also you, you, that makes sense to you. Like yeah. You understand why that might be the case. We spent some time in uh, off the coast of northern Spain. I spent a day, a day and a half with uh, goose barnacle fishermen in a place called Asturias. 
And the premise of that segment was this is deeply dangerous work, which it is. They're in their mid-20s. They go out on these little dinghy boats into the water, jump on these huge boulders with waves crashing all over them, incredibly slippery, and they scrape goose barnacles to sell to, like, fancy rich people restaurants. And talking to these guys, all of the questions that I was supposed to ask them needed to cover the things that the episode were about, like the value you place on your life, how many people you know who have been killed or injured. And those numbers are real, you know. But I also said, why do you do this work? Because it's, you know, these folks were not in a, an economic bracket or in a life situation where they were, like, forced into something. It was all free will. They were very proud of what they were doing as they should be. They, should, they were talking about it. And we were standing on this cliff overlooking this beautiful ocean with these jagged rocks sticking out. And I said, why do you guys do this knowing what a big risk it is to your life? I said, who gets to say that this is their office? How many people get to look at this ocean and say, this is where I get to work every day? And that opened up a conversation that I think artists and journalists and athletes are privileged to have, which is, I can't imagine doing anything else. I sort of wanted to do this. And I, re- and I talked to them. I said, did you reject office jobs? They said, yes, of course. I think the idea of sitting in an office every day to make the same amount of money would be awful. I want to be out on the water. I love what I do. So this idea of I love what I do and the exciting part of it was something that surprised me a little bit because I didn't think that we'd get to a place in those conversations about how to put a value of money on death that would instead talk about the joy of living. How do you how do you square that with the sort of, I mean, look, a, a couple minutes ago you were, you were expressing what sounded like some some uh, well-earned skepticism about capitalism, right? <laughs> so, like, how do you how do you square that idea that there are oh, there are people who are just doing like dangerous, crazy jobs because they want to, um, and maybe that's cool for them with you know the, some of the darker shit that you encounter? Yeah, I don't think it's a skepticism of capitalism as much as it is an understanding of how the laws are written and how and who gets to make the rules. The the I mean, I met you know. These guys are already in a financial position where they're not being forced into a situation. So, of course, them talking about their love of life is very different than somebody like a, a rubber tree farmer who literally has a company, like, has them under their thumb. Totally different situation. I think that, that big takeaway was who gets to write the rules. And uh, this great interview with Felix Sater that we had, I think it was the money laundering episode. Um, you know, Felix was one of Donald Trump's business partners when they built the Trump Soho. He's had a really interesting life story. He's been a, an FBI and CIA informant. He's also spent time in prison for stabbing somebody. Uh, I'm not getting that in the correct order, by the way. You know, he uncovered a plot to uh, assassinate President Bush and stopped that from happening. I mean, really fascinating guy. When we sat down, I said, look, this is an episode on money laundering. I don't want to ask you about Trump, and I'm not going to sit here and talk about Obama. The elephant in the room, obviously, is that I worked for President Obama off and on for eight years, and you are or were a Trump business associate. The, obviously, the stuff coming out of the Mueller probe yields us to understand that that was true. Uh, but I said, I want to I want to know about the money laundering stuff. And he talked to me through how you launder money. He's obviously you know very fun guy on camera in terms of like, what's the best way to smuggle diamonds? You tuck them under your balls. Like literally, that's how you – because even if you're going through security, nobody wants to check under your balls. So like – that kind of stuff. But then also he, he, he was kind of breaking down like, look, as long as the financial system operates the way it does, if we want growth in the economy, laws are going to be written for the ease of business. And as long as ease of business is what people focus on, people are going to be able to launder money because there aren't going to be enough checks and balances to stop it. So really it's a question of if you want to launder money, do you believe you're going to get caught or not? Seemed to be the subtext of what he was saying. 
I appreciated that very much. To have a guy who's that wealthy and that well-connected just sort of look at you and say, you're asking the questions as if somebody's trying to hide something from you. And I didn't, I didn't feel like he was trying to hide anything. He was actually saying, take a big step back and look at who's writing these rules and why they're writing those rules and who it impacts and why. I mean, this is stuff that both a Ron Paul and a Bernie Sanders both would have talked about in sort of the same way, right? So I don't think it's a, it's a hatred of capitalism. On the contrary, it's like you can have the is capitalism good or bad argument, but that's not what we were doing. We were sort of looking at how these strings are created, who's financing and passing these laws, and does the average person have an opportunity or an ability to push back on that and, and craft it and change it? I think the answer is yes. We didn't answer that question, <laughs> but I do think the answer is yes. In a moment where you know you have people talking about the you know the idea that there shouldn't be billionaires, or you know talking about socialism as as uh, more openly as a sort of desirable model uh, under which you know the country should be run, maybe um, which is stuff that like just is unthinkable like ten years ago. Yeah. Um, with a show like this, I mean, uh, it seems like you guys are really sort of very you know. It seems like the point is, uh, I think, and I think this is what you're saying, to explain how things work, right? Yeah. Not necessarily to um, to pass any judgment. Um, but how do you think it's received then in an atmosphere where everything's super polarized and, you know, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, French Revolution vibe? Happening? Sure. Yeah, look, th- it's it's not a... It's not a show that lacks a perspective. I think we didn't pull any punches in terms of, you know... Things that are factual are factual. We're, we're not suggesting that maybe there are good bankers whose side we should listen to when we're talking about the, action, the shady actions of big banks. Why would you do that? Anyone can look that up. You know you're a very nice lady at the bank. What we're talking about is not that, that specific thing. We're talking about how are financial crimes committed and how come people get away with it when we're a country that locks kids up for possessing a little bit of weed. Right? Like, why does that happen? Who gets to write these rules? How come these people aren't in jail? Oh, because they didn't break any laws? Why didn't they break any laws? Oh, because they wrote the laws? Oh, okay. Let's look at that and, and figure out how that works. So I think, yes, we're, we live in a polarized climate. We wanted to make a show that everybody could watch and could digest. So most people understand that it's a problem, right? Most Americans understand that climate change is a real thing, despite what our current elected officials are sort of talking about. So um, so that was our approach was these are factual things. We're not debating whether facts exist or not. I think a lot of people in like the cable news space talk about things like they're debating things that are fact. That's silly and we didn't want to do that. So I think with that out of the way, we were able to, with a, a point of view and an opinion, kind of focus on things that, that were relevant. When you're doing something like um, – when you're getting ready to do something like sit down with a former cartel lawyer, um, what, uh, what's your interview prep process like? So we had uh, we had prepped questions from our producers of things that they wanted to ask um, and wanted me to touch on. And then there are articles and interviews that I'd read with a lot of these folks before. As you might imagine, it's very difficult to get somebody to talk on camera about things like financial crimes or the shadiness of big businesses in, in some cases. So the people who have been willing to speak about it have talked to other people about it in the past too, or they're just like crazy gregarious characters like Umberto Aguilar in, uh, in Miami. Um, so there was like the prep of what the network or what my producers needed. And then there's like the side of it that I wanted or our director, a guy named Dave Lavin, fantastic. He came from Vice, worked at Vice for years in Brooklyn and like 
his point of view is much more human interest, which kind of aligns with kind of my form of storytelling. So it was cool to have that collaborative effort where you get the stuff that the producers need, you get the stuff the network needs, and then you're allowed to ask questions that you think are interesting that may or may not make it in to the final process. But also it's like talking to somebody about normal things before you get into the meat of the like shady part of the conversation. Um, like Umberto's a great example. He's in that money laundering episode and he you know, if you ask him if he's sorry about what he's done, he says, of course he is, and he would never do it again. And But when he recounts these decadent years he spent laundering cocaine money in the 80s by hiring prostitutes to sign corporate documents for a couple of hundred dollars, he says it with, like, a smile on his face. Like, what, wherever he's going with his sense memory were, like, the good old days for him. That shit is crazy. So those were – that prep process was – I was really thankful to him, obviously, for being so candid with us. But I think that, that's part of it that's missed, which is, like, these things were fun for people who were doing shady things. And I don't know how to prepare for something like that because that's not my background. Um, but I was, I was thankful for, for that. When, when, he, um, when he starts talking about, like, opening uh, boxes and finding stacks of cash inside or, yeah. or setting up a brothel as a shelf company um, – <laughs> Do you would you get that moment when you were doing any of the interviews that I think a lot of people uh, sometimes get when they're in that situation where you're like, oh shit, I'm so happy that he is talking about this right now. This is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, the, the 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 human interest parts of what people were willing to talk about were, I thought, like just interesting. Um, there's also stuff that people you could tell did not want to talk about. And we're like, you know, we, and for good reason, we shot for a couple of days in the UAE. Um, I think we had an expert on the Dubai economy who, Raimundo, I think, who was flown in from uh, wherever he's teaching right now. But um, I might be getting names and places wrong because it was such a whirlwind. But um, conversations with him were, you know, were like, look, you can and can't say certain things on camera in a in a country that has legal repercussions or something like that. And so how do you tell these stories in a truthful way without um, without putting your subjects' lives at risk, obviously, but also being able to tell a story in a way that the audience doesn't have to read between the lines too much? And I think we found a good way to do that where we used, you know, we, we couldn't go in and talk to indentured folks who were building the Dubai economy, but it's not like we could tell that story without mentioning that that exists. And in the subtext there is obviously to an audience who's interested in this, like, look a little deeper if you want to look into that. But this incredible wealth that's juxtaposed against who's building it, um, the, 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 the way that the economy of Dubai is set up doesn't shy away from that. That's what their law says, and that's what they're willing to advertise. And if you do business there, you know what you're getting into if you're an investor at the top. You know that you're only owning 49% of your company. The people who don't know what they're getting into – are the folks from Pakistan and South Asia who are coming over there, having their passports taken away. They have to work for X number of years to pay back loans. Then they're quote-unquote free to be part of the 49% that's owned by the 51%. Like those are, you know, that's crazy, but those are some of the the wow moments of figuring out how to tell that story in places where it's a little bit tricky to tell. You, uh, as you were just talking about, I mean, you flew all over the world for this thing. I mean, it's not... You weren't just sitting in a studio in Burbank doing voiceover. <laughs> right. 
Um, we did that too, but yeah, there's, no, the, there's yeah. the voiceover. <laughs> um, why, uh, you know, so this was a significant time commitment. I mean, you, you're a guy with a career, so why would you want to take something like that on? I just hadn't done it before. The, the only thing that came close uh, a couple of years ago, I worked on a, a, sh- a documentary short, things like 12 minutes long, for Vice about the Mississippi state flag. Um, and that was an incredible experience. It, we only spent two days shooting it. I had a producer from Brooklyn and then a camera person. And we got invited to Confederate flag rally in Jackson, Mississippi, and spent time with folks who were vehemently attached to the Confederate emblem that's still in the Mississippi state flag. And there was a lot of conversation around it. It was immersive. I mean, obviously, I'm well aware of the fact that when you bring cameras with you, people will behave a certain way that they may not in a mob mentality scenario or somebody like me might walk into a certain place. But the opportunity to tell that story outside of the confines of either a newspaper or a network were really interesting. I'm, I'm a fan of what they do on Vice, so I wanted to test it out. But I thought, you know, when we sat down for this show and the producer sort of said, we're looking for a host for a show about the global economy. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about the global economy and talked about being a conduit or being a, you know, the lens through which the audience learns from it. I thought this could be maybe a bigger version of what I had the chance to do for Vice, which was exciting and interesting. And the bottom line is I don't know any of this stuff. Like, I didn't really understand how cryptocurrency worked until at least halfway through this four-month shoot. Um, and you're meeting with experts who are talking to you as though you're an idiot for not understanding it. I'm like, I'm, I mean, I might be an idiot, but also my job is to get this explanation out so our audience can understand it too. Um, and I wanted that. I wanted to like learn about this kind of stuff and see that side of it. So that's why I wanted to do it. I also I like storytelling in all forms. My first love is obviously like dick jokes and broad comedy, but there's a time to be serious and there's a time to there's a time to have fun. And whenever there's an opportunity to tell stories while doing both, it, it's something that I'm interested in at least trying out. I feel like you found the the convergence of the Venn diagram between <laughs> dick jokes and crypto. Maybe. Well, those guys. Uh, oh, I guess there's a lot of overlap. There's a actually. lot of overlap. There, there was a, a place called the Crypto Castle in San Francisco. If you watch the cryptocurrency episode, that is like legit. What we captured is exactly who these folks are, in the most fascinating way. Like it's the best and worst of what you think happens in a tech community, and they were so inviting to us. I hope that's what we also captured in the final product. Is that like they were just so welcoming of like, yeah, we believe crypto is the future. We do not believe the hype of the rise and fall of these little bubbles. That's not what it's about. It's not about the get-rich-quick schemes. But they're super quirky, interesting, you know, whatever the generation is before millennials or after millennials, rather. Z, Z. Um, like, they're that, and they are. They have grown up in this world that's just super fascinating. So that's the other side of it that I loved is you're, you're just getting to spend time with these quirky, super interesting people. Cal, thanks for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. HBO documentary The Case Against Adnan Saeed premieres March 10th. Hulu's new scripted series Shrill debuts March 15th. Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario discussed both shows. Hello. This week we're talking again about two shows that are coming out in the next week. The first one is an anticipated HBO follow-up to the popular podcast Serial. Dan, you reviewed The Case Against Adnan Syed. I will admit that I didn't really listen to Serial. I wasn't around when it became a thing and have never quite caught up. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is, what it concerns, and sort of the level of Serial fandom you have to be at to really understand what's happening. I definitely feel as though this documentary series is made for Serial obsessives, those who have Mm. tracked the Syed case for a long time. However... 
it so kind of restages serial and goes through the same arguments again that you could come to it completely cold. For, for those who don't know, like you, Serial uh, <laughs> is a podcast uh, by the journalist Sarah Koenig. All right, I that, know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there may be someone who doesn't even know that. It was it was very, very popular, kind of popularized podcast. It's credited with doing that. Uh, it followed a young man uh, who is in prison and who was imprisoned for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, which is a crime that happened when both uh, he and she were in high school. And so he's been locked away for years. Uh, This came to Koenig's attention uh, thanks to a lawyer who is very close to Adnan. And that same lawyer emerges as the protagonist of this documentary. She walks us through uh, the case against Adnan and why she thinks it's faulty in very much the same lines that Serial already did. I think it's interesting because this has kind of become, I say in my piece, like a bit of, you might call it like our trial of the century. This is a case that has consumed so much energy in print, online, in the minds of fans, in conversations. And yet Adnan, what makes it a case that's interesting is that Adnan is so unremarkable himself, that this (laughs) could have happened... To anyone, I guess, is the argument that both podcast and show are making, that he was just a person caught up in this crazy situation. I will say it's beyond my ken to say whether or not it's convincing as to whether or not he did or did not kill Heyman Lee. If I never again have to see or hear about, like, the cell phone towers in Baltimore, it will be too (laughs) soon. It's just – it's just – and I'm not even really being facetious. It is just these same pieces of evidence that have – already been used to incredibly great effect in serial like that just come up again in a show made by different people i'm not really certain why it exists Mm, interesting i feel like i also heard a little bit about how this documentary uses her diary in a little bit of a different way is that true yes that's a good point thanks for bringing that up because it happens largely in the first episode and then is abandoned Heyman lee is the name of the victim and her diary is used is read aloud in the first episode with the practical effect of, I guess, convincing the viewer that Adnan couldn't have done this because he was such a loving, good boyfriend, uh, that's all well and good, I suppose. It left kind of a creepy taste in my mouth just at that. Mm. The fact is that it's read by an actress overlaying animations of the two kind of in love, kind of walking through a forest at one point, a Lana Del Rey song plays. I it, wish you guys could see my face right it, now. It's 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 just unfortunate because it is such a kind of distasteful way to use the diaries of this young woman who's now been dead going on 20 years. And it's just, it's it just gave me the creeps. It's just, true crime really dances on the edge of good taste for me mm-hmm. at the best of times. Yeah, And I think this this generally isn't doing anything new this documentary and the things it does new are bad yeah i remain completely unconvinced that reenactments are useful or good in any true crime documentary i felt the same way when i was reviewing um lorena the lorena bobbitt docuseries from amazon and i felt like there was so much good material and i didn't understand why we had to reenact her watching tv and the have the back of her head like it wasn't it didn't add anything. I really hate that stuff. So I'm disappointed to hear that it's in this again. Yeah. It also just lends a feeling like the Lorena 
documentary was very high toned. This is on HBO and generally feels like a very virtuous and well-made documentary despite its flaws. And then when these reenactments come in, it feels like like unsolved mysteries from the 90s. It feels mm. so kind of tacky and unworthy yeah. in a way that I think makes it hard to take the whole thing seriously. All right. Well, it sounds like that's the kind of thing that you check out if you're obsessed with the case, but maybe otherwise you've got a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I will say as someone who listened to Serial but does not consider myself an obsessive, I think I was good with just Serial. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to talk to you about a show you're reviewing, yes. which has kind of an SNL standout, getting a big look that I think we've all been kind of waiting for, fans of hers mm-hmm. at least. A.D. Bryant is starring in her own TV show for Hulu called Shrill. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you thought about it. Yeah, I really I really liked it. It's uh, six episodes premiering on Hulu, and it's actually premiering on South by Southwest first. But I was interested in this for a while because this has been in the works um, pretty much ever since the book that it's based on came out. It's based on Lindy West's memoir of the same name. She's a writer who was working at Jezebel for a long time. Now she writes for the New York Times, and a lot of it concerns her experience in the world as um, a plus-size woman in a world that deeply disdains her and sort of her daring to push back against it, the pushback she gets. Um, 80 stars is sort of a fictionalized version of Lindy. Her name is Annie. She's a writer in Portland, and the six episodes kind of trace uh, her coming to be more confident in her own skin and not let people walk all over her anymore and take up more space in the world. Um, I think it's a shame that we couldn't get more than six episodes. From what I gather, that's as much as 80 could manage with her SNL schedule. But the six episodes we got are pretty good, and um, she's fantastic. Like, that's sort of the main takeaway from for me from this, is that she has been long overdue a role like this. Anyone working on SNL has a hard time getting away and doing other stuff because your time is so limited. But I'm really glad that she chose to do this with hers because I think it's a really great showcase for her. And um, there's some other really great actors in the cast. Um, Lolly Adafope, who was recently in Miracle Workers and was great, plays her best friend and roommate. Um, we got John Cameron Mitchell as her boss. Um, she works for sort of a local paper, which um, the local paper does feel like sort of a throwback from another time when local papers could afford to keep employees who are just in charge of maintaining the calendar as hers is. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, All weeklies are not like a growth industry. And this this definitely seems like a pretty <laughs> robust one on this no, show. No, yeah, but it's um, the team is really good. There are some really great directors. Carrie Brownstein directs one. Um, and Aidy and Lindy have writing credits. Uh, it's funny. It's interesting. There's one great episode. That one's written by Samantha Irby, where she goes to a pool party that's for plus-size women and kind of has her mind blown by sort of the sheer confidence and joy on display. And there's this... I can't get over There's this one shot where she finally dives into the swimming pool without thinking too hard about it and she's sort of swimming past all these bodies you never see on tv like this especially not all at the same time (laughs) so there's stuff like that that i think is so great and valuable and i just wish we had a little bit more time with it it was maybe a little bit less less scattered excuse me because between her work her friends uh her family there's just a she has this boyfriend who's awful to her (laughs) and it's hard to watch um there's just a lot of ground to cover. Um, so I hope that we do get more of it because I think it is worth doing. Yeah, and I will just say briefly, I, I watched it as well, and I share your sense that she is kind of the story of the show. Mm-hmm. And what I really loved about her performance is that it's not 
a pure moment to moment laugh riot, no. like constantly comic. Like she gets subtler notes to play, and I think it's like there are, there are moments that are outright dramatic, and I and I'm not surprised that she can do that, but it's really awesome to see that it yes. that we've already seen her antic comic side on SNL. This is like another side and she feels like a very three-dimensional actress right and another thing i like about what she does with the character and what they do with it her in general is that they don't she's deeply flawed not in sort of like an obvious sort of messy way but in sort of a she can be selfish and she um doesn't often know what she's doing but then she gets these moments there's one great moment sort of later on where she sort of the dam bursts um and she finally expresses all these thoughts that she's been keeping in and it's on the page, it must have been at least three pages, and 80 absolutely nails it. So I'm really excited for her, and I'm excited for people to see her do it. Yeah, well, Shrill uh, debut, debuts on Hulu March 15th, and The Case Against Adnan Syed debuts on HBO March 10th. And if you don't want to watch those, there's <laughs> always more TV where that came from. This week's issue of Variety boasts a cover story from Michael Schneider on the fast-rising costs of Emmy campaigns. We talked with Mike about all that spending and whether it'll ever be curbed. Mike, your cover story this week was about the sort of arms race that is happening among streamers and uh, networks in terms of Emmy campaign spending. What did you What did you find? Yeah, you know, it's funny because we were talking about this kind of arms race years ago when it was just HBO spending tons of money and then the broadcasters were complaining and everyone said, this is ridiculous, this is getting out of hand. Well, that, that was child's play. Those were the sweet, innocent days of the early <laughs> 2000s before the streamers came along. And of course, these are, you know, Silicon Valley companies with just boatloads of cash, and they see it as a business uh, a, a business expense. It's part of the marketing of, of a direct-to-consumer service where you, know, you need to remind consumers that there's value in what you're plunking $13 a month for. So it's, it's a business expense. It's marketing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's it, unlike for the broadcast networks where it was truly just nice to have, there's a real reason for these streamers and these, consu- these, these, these uh, subscription services to spend that kind of money. So spend they are. Uh, millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it's it's uh, it's getting bigger every year, and that's why this year, uh, you know, between the new entrants and the traditional uh, uh, linear networks trying to stay in the game, they're spending more money than ever. What are some of the things that they're spending that money on? So, you know, there's there's always the uh, uh, you know the FYC events, the For You Consideration events that seem to get bigger all the time, and, and those have already started up. There's, there's often two or three a night, uh, so those are not cheap. Uh, you know, it's funny, like uh, we pegged in the story about 50 grand to do one of those things. A lot of people told me, you know, that's kind of lowballing it uh, when you bring when when you also consider transportation, makeup, uh, you know, this, you know, getting stars to show up at these things, add on all of that. And we're talking more like 60 grand, 75 grand just for one of these events. Uh, and then, you know, there's, uh, you know, the DVD screeners, which are being phased out. This is the final year that you'll have those. But, you know, we know the Academy is going to find other ways for, uh, you know, the networks to, and studios to spend money there. But those aren't cheap, especially if you put multiple episodes on these these DVDs that go out. Uh, and, uh, you know, from there, you've got the streamers who are going the extra mile and actually launching these 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 big installations. Uh, you know, Amazon does their thing at the Hollywood Athletic Club every year. 
And uh, Netflix, the past couple of years, has done their event over at Raleigh Studios. And every year it's a bigger and badder event with Instagram-friendly displays and events every night of the week and, and food and beverage. And it's it's just uh, an orgy of uh, for your consideration. And so that all adds up. And as you said, millions of dollars being spent on this stuff. What is it that Netflix and Amazon in particular, the, the new entrants here, what are they looking to get out of out of that spending? They're they're looking for credibility. Uh, they're they're looking for uh, you know they they want to be dominant. They they want to be seen as the dominant force in Hollywood and entertainment. And hey, listen, last year uh, you know thanks to the sheer volume of content that Netflix had and the amount of campaigning that they did. They bested HBO for the first time ever. And, you know, that's not bad for, you know, a company that never had a nomination before 2013. By 2018, already had more than 100 nominations. So that that's, sends a message that also uh, gives them control of the narrative. And, you know, if, if they're looking for, uh, you know, real control of the ecosystem and, and world domination, it's not bad to be. Uh, and, uh, you know... For, for a company like Netflix or Amazon, this is like pocket change. You know, they're spending money, but they, they are getting some, some results out of it. With all this money being spent, what, if anything, is the Academy considering to try to rein this in at all? So I talked to a number of execs, and you know a lot of them have heard, and, and they've talked about uh, spending caps. It's, it's something that's come up from time to time inside the Academy. But it's always with a caveat, which is no one knows how you could ever actually implement something like that. Uh, how, do, how do you even sort of, uh, uh, sort of list this as a Emmy expense versus a marketing expense? Uh, there, there are a hundred ways to game the system. And as we see, people love gaming the Emmy system as it is. So ultimately, there would be cr- cries of foul play, of, of uh, questions of fairness. So to even try to implement something like that might be impossible, but it's worth at least investigating. And it is something that comes up from time to time, just as a lot of things come up from time to time at the Academy. And uh, you know, we'll see. But I'm not really confident that we'll ever get to the point where they're saying you can't spend X amount. There's just so many ways to get around that. Short of imposing some kind of cap, do you see any of these platforms or, or any of the studios behind these shows uh, reversing course at any point and easing up on the the, the expenditures? Not immediately. Uh, I think it would have to be outside forces. I mean, if we enter another recession, for example, or if there's something that that changes in the economics of some of these streaming services where suddenly they are pinching pennies, that could change things. Uh, you know, uh, or, or if there is sort of this mutually agreed uh, decision to let's let's not destroy each other by spending this much and let's let's tone it down, that would require some sort of summit. Uh, hey, maybe Variety should sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, it, it's going to take something major, I think, because for now, at least, this seems to be ingrained into the system. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. I mean, it's an ecosystem that, uh, you know, helps uh, you know support a lot of businesses, including journalism, by the way. And that's something that, you know, funny enough... Uh, 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 you know, the, the, the mayor of television, John Landgraf, was mentioning in, in sort of when you ask him, hey, you know, what do you make of this this crazy campaign season? Well, he doesn't love it, but he does love the fact that it, uh, you know, supports a lot of businesses. And this is an ecosystem that, you know, keeps people employed. Then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and it's ultimately 
pretty harmless. Uh, you know, people spending money, if that's where they want to spend their money, then fine. It also keeps voters well fed. Exactly. And Tupperware in business yeah. as well. Um, so so yeah, it's, it's good for everyone. So watch, uh, watch your weight and watch your liver over the next couple of months. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Janine Mason of the CW's Roswell, New Mexico. 